From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Trump administration's proposed defense budget for 2022 tops out at $722 billion. Budget experts call the release of the passback guidance an attempt to hinder the Biden administration. Defense One reports outgoing administrations in the past haven't issued draft budgets at all, let alone with the detail of the passback budget. The White House will endorse a pay freeze for the federal civilian workforce in the fiscal 2021 budget deal. OMB Director Russ Vogt writes in a guidance letter to Appropriations Committee and Subcommittee chairs and ranking members, the pandemic's impact on, quote, non-federal labor markets is the reason for supporting a freeze. The guidance document endorses a 3% raise for uniformed military personnel. A lawsuit against the federal government over back pay from the 2018-2019 shutdown can proceed after a judge denied a request to dismiss it. Judge Patricia Campbell-Smith ruled the Anti-Deficiency Act doesn't prohibit agencies from paying employees during a shutdown. Federal News Network reports the government has until January 29th to respond to the suit. The Information Technology Industry Council expects investments in IT modernization to go up under the new Biden administration. The fiscal year 2020 IT budget's about $88 billion. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former CIO of the Department of Homeland Security. Richard, welcome. It's great to see you again. We've been at this 80 to $90 billion number for a number of years now. It doesn't appear that budgets for uh, anything in government will explode at any time in the near future. What difference are you seeing in the way that agencies are deploying the money that they're getting for IT? Uh, well, Francis, good question. I mean, I would say I mean, obviously the, the, the pandemic, pandemic has really changed some of the investment profile. And, you know, I'm kind of heartened by what's happened with that, even though in a very bad environment right now. The pandemic has really put a spotlight on the importance of, of IT in, across government. And I, I think a lot of the agencies have responded pretty well to that. You know, with that being said, I think a lot's going to hinge upon whether or not the Senate uh, changes control regarding uh, budgets in the future. If the Senate were to flip to the Dems, I think we've got a chance to see significant increase uh, in IT modernization spending uh, moving forward. Where should those resources go, though, Richard? What are agencies doing well that they should extend? And what have they not leveraged yet as far as transformation or modernization, whatever term you want to apply? Yeah, I mean, let, let's talk about the negative side of this. I mean, the GAO recently did a study where they surveyed agencies and get this stat. In 12 agencies that they looked at, only three of them had really solid IT modernization plans that, that not only uh, dealt with putting in new systems, but actually dealt with how do we rationalize the legacy? Uh, how do we replace legacy where we really need to replace legacy systems? That's only 25% of agencies doing that. That's a really poor number. And I, I think there's we've got to, in a new administration, really focus on putting in solid uh, IT modernization plans on an enterprise basis across the agency. Um, and then together with that, and you know, I've got a number of recommendations for the next administration, but let me, let me hearken on one other one, which is really critical, and that's around cybersecurity. While you're doing that IT modernization planning, I think it should also be driving towards 
uh, moving to zero trust models uh, for, I, uh, for cybersecurity. And you can do that within the IT modernization plan. And then if you bring in the use of the cybersecurity risk management framework, okay, from NIST, and really do it right, then you've got a way to prioritize your investment in cybersecurity. So you're really focused on the most important things, the most critical assets within the agency. I think if you do the IT modernization planning well, together with that cybersecurity uh, zero trust model and, uh, and the rationalization um, uh, and risk management approach for cybersecurity, I think you can really move the needle within a few years in, in um, federal IT. So is there a way for agencies, or is there maybe a, a template that agencies could take up to build those modernization strategies, to build those plans? Because you're right, that's an alarming number. And I mean, quite frankly, I I'm surprised that it's not, that that hasn't happened faster than it has, because it, it's the old adage of, if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. That's right. And in fact, I think I call it piecemeal modernization. That's what a lot of agencies are doing. I'm not saying that some of the things they're doing are not helping. I mean, I think incrementally they're helping, but we need a wholesale change in the way we're going about IT. And I, I think it begins with that good planning. So look, there are good templates out there. I mean, we don't have to go reinvent this stuff. Um, we could pick from the best of the best that's already being done in government. And, and this is really a mandate for OMB uh, in the next administration, okay? Who has ever in charge there, um, they, they should using these templates and force the agencies to go through this planning exercise. And I recognize, you know, it might take years, it might take five to 10 years for some of these agencies to truly modernize because they just aren't gonna have the resources available, nor do they have necessarily the talent, okay, to do this as fast as we all would like to. But if you have a, a rational plan, to your point, that you know where you're going, um, then you can put in the incremental steps to get there. And by the way, this is not in any way taking away from, you want to be using modern development techniques, agile, you know, DevOps, now DevSecOps. You want to be using modern development approaches, implementation approaches, but that does not obviate the need for the good planning that I've, I've talked about. And it strikes me too, Richard, the transition is not really a great excuse for the delay of those strategies being developed because I think if I recall correctly about half of the cabinet level at least chief information officers are careers so they won't necessarily flip January 20th right? That's right and, and in fact there's really I mean this isn't an issue at least on the planning side of money this is an issue of just doing it right mm -hmm. and, and, and forcing that discipline across the federal agencies if you, I think that you start there um, you know, whether or not you're going to get it a plus as far as the budgets, we'll see. But, but I frankly think we can do a lot, okay, with good plans and then incremental achievement over time that's coordinated, right? That makes sense rather than this piecemeal type of modernization that we see too often. Um, a lot more we could talk about about the strategies, but I want to mention zero trust in the time that we have left, Richard. There are a lot of agencies that are talking about moving to zero trust models for security. Is maybe that the problem that they're talking about doing it, but haven't quite gotten on to the execution part fast enough? Yeah, that's probably a fair point. Um, I think you're seeing, you know, at least there's a lot of focus. I mean, the core of zero trust, of course, is good identity management. And you are seeing real movement in identity management space. Of course, you've had cat carts, for instance, and DOD for a long time, but, but you are seeing an uplift there. 
I think if that's 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 a start, but obviously that's only one component of zero trust. Um, we do need to move that ball forward, but again, I would reiterate, do it smartly, and that's where real risk management comes into place. I think if there was discipline, that would have, again the use of that risk management framework, so that you're really focused on an enterprise basis across the agency on the most important assets we could move the ball quite a bit further in, in cybersecurity as well. We just have a very short time left. What has the Trump administration and the agencies under it done well, IT-wise, that the Biden administration should continue to push? Yeah, look, there's a lot of good work that was done under the president's management agenda. Don't throw that out, okay? Build on it, build on the best there. I mean, frankly, one of the big focuses was on IT modernization. I just, uh, I just don't think they took it quite far enough. A lot of focus on data, for instance, okay? A lot of focus on cost accounting, like the use of TBM. These are all very good things that uh, the Biden administration should build on. Richard Spires, thanks very much as always. Very good, thank you. Up next, teaming with European allies to address China. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new ways for the U.S. to cooperate with its partners. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The United States has a possible path to repositioning its relationship with China in the Biden administration. That path could go through Europe. Jordan Link is a China policy analyst at the Center for American Progress, writing about this issue with his colleagues in War on the Rocks. Jordan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and uh, Katrina Mulligan, Laura Edwards write this. If the next administration's to succeed in recalibrating its relationship with Beijing, U.S. officials will have to work quickly to build a unified coalition of partners and allies to blunt the challenges of China's ascendance. What does that look like? What does that building that coalition look like? Great. That's a great question. So it looks like that we have several key mutual interests between the U.S. and Europe vis-a-vis -vis China, whether it's pandemic response efforts, uh, climate change, tech policy, addressing human rights abuses, so trying to find a way to kind of bring everyone together, build a bigger tent, have a bigger team of partners and allies to kind of address those common issues or common values that we have. You and your colleagues write that European perspectives toward China are rapidly changing. Where have they been and are they changing in a way that makes it more likely that they're going to be willing to collaborate with us based on where we've been and where the Biden administration is likely to take us? Uh, yes, it's very important to point out that European perspectives are changing. So this is not just a, you know, Washington-centric policy that's being put together or something like that. Um, there is, you know, definitely real change, and this is a real opportunity for U.S. policy um, to kind of change and, and loop in at European allies and partners. Um, for instance, the European Commission for the first time recently labeled China as a strategic competitor. Um, there's also a draft paper circulating calling this like a once-in-a-generation um, opportunity for collaboration with the U.S. vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. So... Um, there's definitely lots of big changes going on. And then in the wake of the global pandemic, um, China has carried out some disinformation campaigns that have not resonated very well at all um, with European uh, citizens and in European capitals. So uh, there's a time for change. How much of that change in Europe's position has come about as a result of things that China has done 
as you just alluded to about the pandemic. And how much of it has been because of changes just in the way that Europe has decided to think? Mm. I think a lot of it has to do with how China has managed their relationship. Um, oftentimes, they've mismanaged the relationship to their own detriment. Um, like I've already said, um, lots of disinformation campaigns and different things of that nature that just have not resonated. Um, there's also lots of, you know, whether it's through China's big um, foreign policy push, the Belt and Road Initiative, lots of economic promises that have not come to fruition. And so there's just this real feeling or sentiment that Europe has kind of had enough of the same old, same old from Beijing. It would be reasonable then if the Biden administration's uh, relationship with Europe about China included an element of we told you so, because those are basically the things that the United States has been saying about China for a number of years. And Europe decided for whatever reason during that same period, we don't think they're quite as bad as the United States does. Am I reading that right or am I reading too much into the events of the last decade or so, Jordan? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I would not go with the we told you so attitude. I would try to have much more, um, you know, positive vision, positive thinking, trying to create a big tent, trying to bring in as many partners and allies just to create more options. Uh, you and your colleagues write policymakers in European capitals are watching the United States to gauge opportunities to join forces. You outlined those a little bit earlier. Is that something you expect to see accelerate in the coming year, two years? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we're already seeing it accelerating with that draft document that I've already previously mentioned. Um, so hopefully once that document's actually published and then we start seeing, you know, real changes and more overtures from Europe towards Washington about what to do with, you know, China relations, um, it's going to, I think it's definitely going to pick up. There are four primary areas that you and your colleagues write about, climate change, technology policy, human rights, democratic values, and trade. Are there uh, some of those four that you think are more ripe for collaboration between the United States and Europe or that will require more work in that collaboration? Mm. I think that the areas that are ripest is definitely going to be climate change and tech policy. Um, we've seen Europe kind of forging ahead and keeping the Paris Agreement, um, you know, chugging along. So the U.S. has to, you know, get right back in that um, and use that as a way to exact better outcomes vis-a-vis -vis Beijing. Um, and then on tech policy, um, especially with like disinformation and things of that nature, um, Europe has experienced a lot of its own disinformation campaigns, whether it's from China or, you know, even Russia, since Russia's right there on their doorstep. So if we can kind of learn from each other and try to uh, exchange best practices and try to see how, how can we address this problem. Um, 30 seconds, Jordan, and this question may be semantic more than logistics. Uh, you and your colleagues ref uh, refer to the European Union throughout this piece. Is it important that we maintain the collaboration with the EU as a body or with the individual nations as well? Yes, um, it's definitely a dual challenge. I think we should be doing both, but um, I think it's just easier um, it's pr probably more coordinated to go through the European Union first. Jordan Link, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Up next, all eyes on the supply chain of the Department of Veterans Affairs as a vaccine gets closer. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the pandemic lessons already learned for the pandemic response to come. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage.
Employees at Department of Veterans Affairs nursing homes will be some of the first people to get coronavirus vaccines. Four of the five first groups to receive the vaccine at the agency will be frontline care providers. LaWanda Jones is Deputy Chief Information Officer for Strategic Sourcing at the Department of Veterans Affairs. LaWanda, welcome. It's good to see you again. What have you learned from the pandemic about providing IT services and supply chain logistics and so on throughout the, your, your area of influence at VA? Thank you, Francis, for having us, and it's such a pleasure to be here. We have learned so much. First and foremost is the importance of the supply chain, understanding our strategic suppliers of those particular capabilities that we must have. You know, this pandemic affected us globally. Everyone throughout the world needed IT, so we had to understand any and every supply chain risk. So we started meeting ahead of time at the onset of the pandemic uh, to find out about the supply chain, what were the issues, how could we get in front of it, as well as work with our uh, acquisition uh, counterparts. So it was a team effort working with GSA, working within VA, but most importantly, understanding those suppliers of the critical capabilities and the supply chain risk associated with that. And it's a game changer. Changer. We've got to understand the supply chain and be able to be proactive and not reactive. You used a term there, Luanda, that I think is fascinating, and that is supply chain risk. When you did that examination, as you just described earlier, early on in the pandemic process, what did you learn, if anything, about your supply chain risk that you didn't know before the pandemic? Well, first and foremost, we learned that, you know, we were always talking to vendors, but I don't believe that we really said, tell us about the supply chain. And you, you have to understand that when we're looking at IT, globally, everybody needed it. Everybody needed the same type of capabilities. So it was important for us to meet one-on-one -on -one with the suppliers to say, what's going on? You know, we need 400,000 uh, end-user devices. How are we going to get it? What, what are some of the things that we need to consider? When we looked at our telework capabilities, we had to rapidly ensure that we had uh, the, the bandwidth, that uh, the networks, that our uh, gateways were working properly. And it takes a village to do that. And it takes an understanding of each of those suppliers, even at the CEO level, of those suppliers working. Uh, I had them on speed dial Saturdays, Sundays. It was a, uh, a all all in effort with our suppliers. Speed dial. <laughs> you mentioned GSA, Lawanda, and it strikes me that the partnerships that you establish with organizations like that all over government with potential uh, acquisition partners were probably tremendously valuable, weren't they? They had to be. Uh, for example, we were going through a protest and we had to get uh, an override of one of our protests for uh, some critical uh, supplies that we need. 
uh, and so we had to work with GSA uh, to talk about VA's priority in the supply chain. We had to talk about uh, working to get a protest override. It was uh, all hands on deck from a federal government perspective. At VA, we are the largest healthcare provider in the United States. And our fourth mission, we had to educate our suppliers on VA's fourth mission of providing healthcare to our civilian counterparts. It could be your cousin, it could be my cousin, then they may not be in a, they may not be a veteran, but when the uh, public hospitals become oversaturated, our fourth mission is to provide that capability. And so we had to ramp up for that. Luanda, we have less than a minute left. What have you and your team put in place as a result of the pandemic that you expect to keep moving forward? Uh, constant uh, uh, working with our suppliers. I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of supply chain risk management, the importance of vendor engagement at the highest level. Uh, we've done vendor engagements for years, but the op-tempo that we're seeing in this pandemic is just, uh, it, it, it's magnificent. And again, supply chain management, we have to do uh, all hands on deck uh, from a whole federal government perspective, not just VA, but this is a federal government initiative globally. Luanda Jones, thanks very much. It's great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. And it was great being back. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.